Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Imagine for a moment that you're driving along the freeway. It's a stretch of the highway that you've traversed so many times that you're pretty much on autopilot. You know how the road bends, where the potholes are, where your exit is. Even the billboards you pass are so familiar that you barely register them. Everything about the journey has a hum of predictability. Now imagine as you're driving along the road, that suddenly, jarringly, the ground beneath you starts to give way. The foundation and the masonry, the concrete that paves your journey, the very structure that seemed so stable and had been there for so long that you took it for granted, just stops. Well, that's kind of what the last 20 months have felt like. For so many Americans, the COVID-19 pandemic has eroded, seemingly overnight, so many of the fundamental aspects of our lives that we've relied on for years. Everything from how we work to the systems we put value and trust in have been shaken, made fragile, or broken entirely. At first, we longed for a quick fix, yearned for the old foundations that were left battered by the pandemic to just be repaired, so we could just get back on the same road. But now there's a new discourse emerging from the damage, a conversation happening in the public and private sectors about whether as we're cleaning up the debris around us, we should even bother trying to return to the roads we know, the structures we've lived by. Instead, perhaps, we should try to remake them. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our first season, we examined the very foundation of democracy, the peaceful transition of presidential power, and how the obstacles and opportunities faced by a new administration can inform how we tackle our most consequential problems. This season, we're going to be exploring how the COVID-19 pandemic is giving us space and perhaps even a mandate to redesign the foundations of how we live, work and create. We'll be focusing on everything from burnout to bicycles, workplaces to women's places within them. And we're going to be asking how enhanced collaboration between the public and private sector can help us figure out better solutions to the most consequential problems. Because as we move towards a post-COVID world, we need to ask ourselves honestly, are the systems we currently live by really serving us, all of us, well? We're reluctant to break out of um, norms, especially with food. But 
that's hampering possibly better ways of doing things, better ways of eating, better foods for us. And so we need to make that leap. We need to, to make that dangerous leap and, and trust that something could be better. That's Amy Bentley, a professor of food studies at NYU. My research focuses on 20th century U.S. food history and culture, uh, how food is embedded in the culture and what that means and does. What does that mean? Are you, are you looking at what we eat, why we eat, how we eat, all of the above? All of the above. The program's been around for over 20 years, and we started out just focusing on food and identity, what food means to people, how it's expressed, how it expresses their ethnicity or their gender or their ideas about nationalism. And then as the national conversation about food really spread like wildfire in the last 20 years, we've started looking at um, critical approaches to the whole food system. As part of this critical rethinking about food and society, Amy wants us to challenge our predictable habits, like eating three meals a day. Do we need three meals to survive? We need a certain number of calories and nutrients to survive, but how they are delivered uh, does not have to be three meals. It can be one meal. It can be eight meals. It can be not even a meal. It can be fed intravenously or a, a liquid beverage if it has enough of those nutrients. So technically and nutritionally, no, but there are a lot of really important reasons why we consume food in a meal. And a meal means something specific to people. If someone handed you a bowl full of carrots or people will and said, here's your dinner, um, you'd go, well, this doesn't really look like a dinner to me and it doesn't really go down like a dinner. We're used to a combination of foods, usually a protein, some kind of carbohydrate and fruit and vegetable, some kind of condiment for flavor enhancement. In terms of the, the three meal structure um, and sort of post-industrialization, so, you know, we were largely an agricultural society um, and then came the industrial revolution. How did that change the way that we structured our intake of food on a day-to-day -day basis. The Industrial Revolution really bound us to a clock in the ways that hadn't existed before in an agricultural model. An agricultural model is really based on a sun-up, sun-down model, um, daylight hours. Um, in an agricultural model, I mean, yes, you would get up early in the dark to take care of animals, do uh, start the fire, maybe cook some food, but there was no clock that you punched in and out that made sure you were there at a particular moment and you left at a particular moment and your salary was dependent on that, that uh, punch card. And that punch card and that regulation of a factory system builds in meal moments. So you might get 30 minutes for lunch if you're lucky, your shift allows it. Or maybe a 20-minute coffee break if you if your union you know negotiated that. And so the work life is structuring the meal and the food and beverage opportunities instead of uh, being more interdependent and, and independent. The irony, of course, is that we've just undergone a massive change, right back to where we started. When our home and our workplace are the same thing, 
there's less of a need to think of meals in this codified fashion. And actually those meals, that meal pattern has been fading for the last while anyway, with the rise of snacking, the rise of advertising and fast food telling us and encouraging us to eat in the middle of the night, um, buy cookies in the middle of the night, go through the drive-thru in the middle of the night. All of those cues about eating three meals a day have been fading over the last couple of decades, and it's become even more pronounced with COVID. Post-industrial revolution, it feels like there has been sort of a real emphasis on the worker being fueled so that they can work, so that they can output. And I'm curious about what you think might be some of the lasting impacts of the pandemic as we're all now renegotiating our relationships to work. Are we also potentially renegotiating our relationships to some of these systems like the three meals a day system you've mentioned? I think we are in a such an interesting moment of reevaluating work. People are moving. People have taken the pandemic as an opportunity to rethink their work-life balance, to decide if it's really worth it spending the majority of their daylight hours at work working and and for what and for whose benefit. And so we're seeing this this churn, this employment churn. Um, clearly, this idea of having more independent space, independence from work that might not be pleasant is on the forefront of people's minds. I think how that fits into food is, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't have time for food. Uh, a lot of people, all they can do is just grab a cup of coffee and a granola bar in the morning, rush through something fast, you know, fast food, fast food, like let's do it fast. Let's just ingest it. This is, this is just fuel without thinking about the cultural value of food, the important array of delicious flavors and tastes and textures out there, sitting down to enjoy a meal with family, friends, coworkers. It sounds simple, but it's actually kind of radical what Amy is suggesting taking the time to engage with something that we do every day and asking ourselves if it's giving us the value that we need. Maybe what food represents is just these larger issues of how do I want to organize my life? We do need to fix the system in which we work and it starts at the level of ideas. Jonathan Molesic is an academic and religious scholar based in Dallas, Texas. For the last several years, he's been applying his theological worldview onto the spirituality of work and our relationship to it. I taught this class called Why Work for many years, and I was interested in work as a moral and spiritual problem or, or question. You know, what, what kinds of meaning do we look for in work? How do we get it? Do we get it? What are the obstacles to that? Societally, we put a different kind of currency into paid work, paid labor versus unpaid labor. What is behind our cultural obsession with work and with paid labor? I think that the cultural obsession with paid work goes a long way back, certainly in American society and I think in the English-speaking world broadly. In the United States... Even before it was the United States, there has been this notion that you only really count in society if you're working for pay. There's a 
version of this ethos that goes all the way back to the Jamestown settlement in 1608. So the settlement was failing. These English colonists were struggling. People were starving and sick. And John Smith took over the settlement and issued this edict that every able-bodied adult had to go out and gather provisions, had to gather wood or food or something. And if they didn't, then they would be set outside of the settlement and left to die. That's pretty dramatic, Jonathan. Yeah, well, and it was probably a necessity at the time if the settlement was going to survive. But that notion has persisted in what is now the United States for over 400 years. Those ideas, so long ingrained in our psyche, have created what Jonathan describes as a distorted view of work and of employees. When the promise of work is total fulfillment, the expectations can be too high for most employers and employees to meet. We demand too much from work. We expect work to totally fulfill us as human beings. And what we demand from work is also becomes what we demand from workers. So we demand that workers be tireless and excellent and always ambitious. And um, we, we expect them not to be humans, ultimately. We expect often workers to be more like machines. And at a moment when machine labor is becoming more and more of a possibility, I think that we need to ask ourselves, well, what is human labor for? What are human beings for? What, what is the point of a human being? And, you know, the point of a human being, in my view, is to flourish, uh, not just materially, but morally and spiritually in a community with others. And then we think about, okay, well, how can work serve that end? And what do we not need humans to do in order for those human beings to flourish? What happens when we stop seeing work as defining our worth? You know, what else changes around us? Like, what are the other sort of systemic changes that happen when we as individuals stop seeing work as defining our inherent worth? I mean, you're, you're talking about dignity, and the question I think you're asking is what happens when we begin to see ourselves as dignified, whether or not we work for pay? And once that happens, I do think that it begins to open up a lot of other avenues of meaning. And I think that we could begin to talk about human rights in a different way uh, in the United States. Things like healthcare are very closely tied to employment. Well, if we saw healthcare as just a right that you have as a person, uh, as a dignified human being, well, then maybe we can detach healthcare from paid employment. And that can perhaps free people up to take a different attitude towards their careers. Another consequence of not seeing workers as having inherent value is burnout. It's something that Jonathan explores in his new book, 
the end of burnout, why work drains us, and how to build better lives. It's also something that he has experienced. Yeah, I did not recognize what I went through as burnout until uh, I had already quit my job. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that, Jonathan. I mean, what is burnout? Burnout is the experience of being chronically stretched across this gap between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. And it manifests in three ways. One is exhaustion, sometimes called emotional exhaustion, which I think many of us are are familiar with. Uh, When I was struggling to get out of bed in the morning, that was exhaustion. The second dimension is cynicism, or sometimes called depersonalization. And that means that you start treating the people that you work with less as people and more as problems. In my case, I did not believe that the students wanted to learn. I thought that they were an obstacle to my success, uh, to, to what I was trying to accomplish. The third dimension is a reduced sense of effectiveness at work. At what point did you realize you were experiencing burnout? I was a theology professor for 11 years. I had tenure. I had my dream job. I had spent my entire 20s preparing for this job. Then I then got it and I I succeeded in it. But after about eight years, the small frustrations that I would encounter early in my job and, and be able to brush off. So, you know, students don't do the assignments or I run into some kind of administrative roadblock on some project that I'm doing. At some point, it became harder to brush those off. And I could only see the negative in it. My job became less and less what I expected it to be, uh, to the point where it was difficult to get out of bed in the morning. Or if I did get out of bed, I found that a couple hours later, I would need to go back into bed. I believe that my uh, job performance really suffered. So Jonathan quit. And he isn't an outlier. Millions of Americans left their jobs this year a phenomenon being called the Great Resignation. So did the pandemic cause burnout? Or did it just do a good job of highlighting some of the issues and and the strictures around work and burnout in general? American workers were complaining and, and suffering from burnout in large numbers before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic just accelerated it for many workers. You look at nurses, for example, where there's been a great deal of reporting on high levels of burnout in their ranks, uh, their working conditions just became incredibly difficult, you know, psychologically difficult and also truly dangerous. And, you know, it's no surprise that there's a high level of burnout among nurses um, because of the burden that the pandemic has placed on them. According to a CBS report, 95% of workers say they're thinking about quitting. A Bureau of Labor of Statistics uh, data point showed that 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs in August of 2021. What do you think about the Great Resignation? What do you make of it? I, I think it's, for one thing, an incredible opportunity for workers 
to transform the role that work plays in their lives. It may be that a number of workers during the pandemic just got fed up with the burdens that were placed on them and in in many cases the the poor conditions that they they had to labor in we also saw millions of workers get a living wage get provided for uh, as an unemployment benefit and i hope that people may have started to internalize the idea that wait a minute why am i you know breaking my body and mind for insufficient wages when just a few months ago, I was making a living wage without having to do that. I hope that the Great Resignation is a sign that American workers are starting to see that they have an inherent dignity that society rightfully ought to recognize. For Jonathan and perhaps for the millions who have left their jobs, burnout is something that is experienced by the individual but it's largely caused by external factors beyond their control. Jonathan's new theology of work, his new approach, asks of employers and employees alike, can we do better? How are you approaching work personally as we are moving beyond the pandemic or hopefully moving beyond the pandemic? Yeah, I I think that I am a a work in progress uh, on that point. The biggest thing that I did to deal with burnout is that I quit my job. I quit my full-time dream job in which I had invested so much of my identity. And it it worked. I, <laughs> quitting really works to cure burnout. The trouble, of course, is that, you know, uh, not, not everyone can do that. And, you know, I, I, I do not live a life of total leisure. Um, I still work uh, quite a bit. I, I do, you know, I teach, I write, and I make a lot less money than I did before. But for me, I think that I'm able to sustain my work now without burnout for a few reasons. I mean, one is that no one job that I do is everything to me. You know, I, I teach part-time at a university. I really like doing it. If I couldn't do that anymore, I would be disappointed, but it wouldn't be the end of the world because there's other stuff that matters to me, other work I do that would still bring income and and all the the non-material stuff too. Also, I, I just have more autonomy. You know, I more or less choose what I want to work on. And I think that having greater autonomy uh, is a good thing for workers. And feeling constantly under the gun is not good and and is a contributor to burnout. So if workers have a bit more autonomy, then they might be a little happier. And, And I certainly am. The many factors behind the great resignation is people are burned out, but they are also just reevaluating their life and what they want. Brooke Boyke is a managing director and a partner at BCG. Her passion is to dig into how we can take innovative approaches to work from the private sector and apply it to the public sector. What, what to you is the purpose of work? What is the function of work? 
that's just such a wonderful question. I, I love it. So, so look, work serves us on many levels. I mean, there's the obvious, just very practical. It, it gives us money to be able to feed ourselves and our families, right? There's, there's the, 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 you know, meeting that, that food, water, shelter piece of it. Um, so, you know, there's base compensation, there's benefits, we need health insurance, there's all that. And so when we think about, you know, you've moved beyond getting your needs met, why do people do things? We, we talk about this in the framing of, of something called employee value proposition, which is what it sounds like. What value are employees getting out of a job? There's rewards that you can get. Um, and, and rewards can be monetary, but they can also be things like recognition. So feeling like you you got that pat on the back. People see you. They recognize you. Um and it's also intangibles. And this is actually, for our knowledge economy, what makes the biggest difference once you get past that level. That knowledge economy that Brooke is talking about is referring to workers who, rather than getting paid to perform a physical task, are generally salaried workers and are paid to essentially think for a living. There's a lot of talk at the moment that the debate tends to be kind of in the in a micro level, right? It's sort of like, well, you know, should we work from home or work from an office? How much time should we spend in one space or another? What are we losing when we're focusing maybe on the, the some of these practicalities, some of this minutiae? You're exactly right. I mean, the conversations to date around future to work, not not completely, but largely have been about you know the where and the when. So when I wake up in the morning, am I going to sit in my home office? Am I going to go into the office? Can I keep my flex hours and still pick up my kids from school? Or do I need to go back to my nine to five? And it makes sense because those are the most acute issues that people are dealing with. Again, there's a rational reason for this. But the challenge is you can only go so far in pushing the boundaries of where work is done and when it's done if you don't step back and think about how it's done. And if you're thinking about how it's done and you're getting more, more flexibility in the how, then that, that has the knock-on effect of making it easier to be flexible in terms of location. And, and so no matter if you're at home or you're in the office, there's certain things that will just make work better, better meaning more efficient, but also better meaning helping people to be more engaged and, and, and happier in their work. To Brooke's point, when we stop to think about how work is done, not just when it's done or where it's done, we can move beyond traditions that just don't serve us very well. Traditions like the waterfall method. Waterfall is, is basically a sequential way of doing work. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. And you work sequentially towards that end. And you may not actually see any output or anything to say thumbs up, thumbs down to until the end itself. Working within the waterfall structure offers little room for adjustments. And it sometimes requires workers to completely redo work if goals aren't clearly defined or communicated. It was tough in an office setting and near impossible when workers went remote. Instead, a new approach to how we work is thinking about things in terms of agility. An agile methodology is one where you, you have incremental cycles and iterations where you do a little mini piece of content and you say thumbs up, thumbs down on that and then move on to the next thing. You continue to refine and evolve over time. And, and despite the jargony nature of the term, I do think it's one of the key ways that we need to move towards rethinking how we do work. Because once you can, you can break up work like that and make it more incremental, any type of work you can break up into these goals, it makes work so much more flexible. For Brooke, a lot of the conversations that we're having now in the cold light of the pandemic are conversations that she's been intimately engaged with for years. 
a lot of the things that everyone's talking about now with the future of work and what does the future of work look like? I mean, these were things that we've been working on for decades. It's just that they became um, more pronounced and more acute and the haves and the have nots also became a lot more clear. It exposed cracks in, in our economy, particularly the way that our knowledge workers operate, that were always there. Um, but it was, it was easier to skate by with them. These cracks have been made more apparent by another massive concurrent shift in how we work outside of the pandemic. We have been undergoing you know, a, a digital revolution for the last you know, uh, decade plus, several decades. It's the biggest workforce movement that's happened since the Industrial Revolution. People have really been rethinking about how they go about doing work, not just where, but how do they approach it. And some organizations have moved much further along than others. And it just became much more apparent um, when we were suddenly sitting at home on our Zoom screens, when you're doing the same type of work you were doing at home in the office, but now you're in a different environment and it became much more clear where the disconnects were. What were some of the errors that were made when many people, organizations made that urgent transition from office work to remote work? Well, this won't come as a surprise to any any of us because we lived it, right? I mean, what what we did is we kept our calendars the same and we just moved everything on video, right? We we had the same meetings, we did the same type of work, um, and 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 even more so than that, we discovered wait, there's more time in the day for meetings because we don't even have to get dressed, right? <laughs> and uh, and so we just added more. Some on of us there. didn't, Brooke. And, Many of us didn't, right? <laughs> Some of us didn't. Some of us just didn't even put on pants. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, makeup, how much time was spent in former life putting on makeup, right? And um, so, you know, we just added productivity into it, but kept doing work the same way. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone. And, and no one can be faulted for that because we were in this phase of, wait, how do I get my job done and get my kids Zoom school going and figure out how to wash my groceries and all of these things at, at the same time, right? It was it was survival mode, Um you know, but we're now at a point, and, and I would say we've been at a point for, for a while where we need to move up at Maslow's hierarchy, right? Where, where this is not just about survival, but pulling back and rethinking how we do work. Um, and that that's the same for whether we stay at home or we go into the office. When we're talking about reimagining how we work and, and what work means and what it is, do we have to throw out the baby and the bathwater? You know, are we talking about kind of like a wholesale system change or are we talking about tweaks on the margin? It depends on where your organization is right now, both in terms of employee morale and engagement and also in terms of how you organize your, your work right now. There is, there is no one answer to that. But I would say that organizations everywhere need to be stepping back and saying, where's, where's the ultimate value that we provide? And what are all the things that we do that don't contribute to that value? and that are wasting our employees' energy and wasting our employees' time. And we're doing it just because of traditional organizations and structures and hierarchies, and it's how we've gone about doing work. And some organizations may need to have tremendous wholesale change just in terms of how they organize their people and the types of constraints that people have on their roles. And others may be able to be more incremental. As, as they think about the future of work, a lot of organizations are thinking about AI and how they can leverage that. It's a, it's a new it's a new buzzword that people are thinking about now. And in fact, most private companies are. About 90% of them are investing in it. And we're seeing only about 10% are reporting that they're getting the value that they wanted, which is, which is a pretty big gap. So 
So it leads you to ask why. And it's because they're really focusing investments in technology and not the people. And uh, that may sound counterintuitive, but it's that's where you really need to invest to get more value of it, about two times as much in the people and processes as the technology itself. And so when we think about um, who succeeds on this, we think about the 10-20-70 rule for these kind of investments where 10% of your investment is, is the, the AI, the algorithms, 20% is the technology, and 70% is the people investment. They're, they're such a critical part of the equation, and that's where the value is going to be unleashed. According to Brooke, any company that's willing to ask itself the right questions and actually act on the answers will be some of the most productive and resilient workplaces in the future. Do you think that we're at an urgent moment now that we actually really do need to see tangible change in how we think about, approach, do work? Absolutely. I, I think we're, we're there and we've been there for a while. I think that we will continue to see large levels of, of churn in our workforce from people feeling continually burned out and dissatisfied and unhappy with how work is organized. And there are answers to it, but it will take focus and concentration to make things different. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, but perhaps we can use this time to question tradition and ensure that we land on decisions that reflect our current needs instead of just what's been handed down to us. Here's food historian Professor Amy Bentley again. I think what the pandemic has shown us is that it's like things aren't working as well as for everyone, as maybe some people thought. In fact, they're not working for a lot of people especially with food. I think the pandemic, I think the ravages of climate change, which are now so obvious, (laughs) like if they haven't been obvious before, uh, they should be obvious to 99% of the population. Um, The social unrest from the inequities that have exacerbated, uh, I think we're at this crisis point where we should understand that the status quo needs to change. And despite it being scary. And despite it being um, frightening, the unknown, we need to make that shift because the status quo is no longer sustainable in so many ways. Three meals a day, for example, is a system that we have all grown up with and we just kind of have adopted because it is familiar and it is a system that we have trusted, trusted that will keep us healthy or keep us, you know, happy or whatever it might be. I think that it does come down to trust and distrust. A lot of what we're talking about here and a lot of our relationships with with food emotionally and structurally. It's sort of peeling back the curtain behind what feels normal, what feels right, and then asking ourselves, well, is this normal? Can it be better? Can there be a better system? Trying to get everyone on board with a new system is also not something that's going to happen overnight or nationwide for that matter. Here's BCG's Brooke Boyke again. I guess what I don't think will happen is that suddenly we will all have a, a cultural mindset shift and and start and start valuing work ourselves in a very different way. We'll we'll at the end of the day still still continue to be Americans and to be operating in in, um, in a lot of the the same manners in that sense. But what I think will make a difference is that it's it's a marketplace and the types of skills and abilities that are needed for organizations to succeed, um, particularly around data and digital, but also like I mentioned, some of those higher order thinking skills, creativity, all of that, as we're moving into this new era, 
there's a shortage of those workers and they have choices and they will move. They're, they're voting with their feet right now in terms of moving. Organizations will have to evolve in incremental ways. And the best way to do that is by looking at what they need, who's the workforce that they're targeting, people internally, right? Like re-recruiting your talent internally as well as externally and seeing if and how what you offer is lining up to that. And if it's not lining up, you will just have constant challenge talent churn problems no matter what. That evolution can act as a new framework, a new status quo, as we navigate the future of work in a holistic way. When we work, when we don't work, if we never work, we have value and that value is not contingent on paid employment. Second would be having compassion for ourselves and those workers we depend upon. That can mean recognizing the challenge, the mental and physical burdens that we as consumers place on workers. And perhaps we don't need to expect overnight delivery of every possible product in the world. But we also need to have that compassion for ourselves. We need to recognize that we don't always have to push ourselves to the limits in order to be considered good workers. I think that Going forward, we need to reconnect with the value of leisure. But finally, we have to see solidarity with each other, that what is ultimately good for you, what will help you flourish, will help me flourish, and vice versa. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis, Join us next week as we move from the future of the workplace to a woman's place within it.